Hello, and welcome to the Nick Chats podcast. My name is Beth Mace, and I am Nick's Chief Economist. Thank you for joining us today. The focus of the Nick Chats podcast is talking to interesting people that have ideas that I think you'd really like to hear about. As you listen today, I hope that you will find some humor, insights, inspiration, and hopefully what I call an aha moment when something pithy or insightful is said, and a light bulb may go off for you. Now, today's structure is a bit different than my typical podcast. Today, we are going to dig into factors that will shape the seniors' housing and care environment over the next decade. To frame that for us, I am pleased that Bob Kramer is joining me today. Bob is Nick's co-founder and currently strategic advisor. He's also the founder and fellow at Nexus Insights. Nexus Insights is a think tank with its mission to, is, is to advance the well-being of older adults through innovative models of housing, community, and healthcare. For the past year or so, Bob has been developing a thesis on the influencing factors that will shape the seniors housing and care industry through 2032. These are categorized into six drivers. The first is the COVID-19 pandemic. The second is the staffing crisis. Third is a new customer and and how that mixes with longevity of the aging adults today. Fourth is reframing health and healthcare. Five is the increasing importance of data and analytics. And the last driving factor is really moving from a siloed to a seamless environment in healthcare. So before we start first, Bob, thank you for coming here. Welcome. Thanks, Beth. I'm delighted to be with you today, and thanks for hosting this series. Absolutely. So before we get into the specific of the six drivers, I was just wondering, what was the genesis of thought process that you used to create the ideas, and what influencing factors have shaped your thoughts? Well, first and foremost, as a member of NIC's board, and we were starting to engage on developing a strategic plan. So uh, that was kind of the first thing of how could I be helpful into that process? And I was struck, this was back in April of 2020, in the very beginning, early days of the pandemic. Um, Henry Kissinger wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, and he was talking about lessons learned from World War, end of World War II in terms of applied to the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And he said at that time that the historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. And I was really struck by that quote. He drew the analogy to all the planning in the last year of World War II for for NATO and for post-World War II Europe. But I was struck with that in terms of what it meant for NIC and our strategic plan and our industry. What did it mean to build the future? And to build the future, you got to be looking out and saying, what is that future going to look like? And I've been fortunate. And I would say just really blessed that NIC, the board, and Brian have enabled me to have this role where I spend a lot of my time doing, thinking about that, Mm -hmm. reading widely and engaging with people outside of seniors housing and care. And so whether it's as scout, ice cutter, or ambassador, (laughs) different or agent provocateur, different roles that the board has, has, has given me. I'm given the freedom of uh, doing this reading and engaging widely outside the sector. So it was taking that then, taking this challenge really from Kissinger of what does it mean to build the future? 
Mm. And that's what caused me to really develop all of this. Plus, just having this being encouraged and really supported by NIC to do this exploration. That's terrific. Thanks. So the first um, driver is COVID-19 pandemic. So how is that helping us shape the future of senior housing and care? Well, I would say that many trends going on, they weren't dramatically, um, they didn't suddenly appear because of COVID, but COVID accelerated and brought into our consciousness trends that would have happened anyway, but it put an it, it sort of put a dramatic emphasis point on them. I'll give a few examples. Um, one was that we really, because of COVID, had a loss of consumer trust in our setting, a fear of the setting. I don't mean people wanting to avoid having to be in assisted living because of what represented. I then mean more the sense of a fear that it could be dangerous to be in that COVID setting. infection. Yes, because of infections. And just as people were afraid of being in hospitals, they're also afraid of being in congregate care communities. And so I think what that put then was, if you're going to rebuild trust, to get trust, you've got to have credibility, and that relates to transparency. And so I think a move already in a more consumer-driven environment and culture, which the boomers represent, to more transparency, really got accelerated because of COVID. Secondly, we came, as I like to put it, kicking and screaming because of COVID in the 21st century world of digital in so many areas for communication with staff, with residents, with families, um, in care delivery. We couldn't ship people out for health care. And so that meant figuring out ways, and a lot of it was digital, to be able to monitor folks and, and, and uh, deliver care, meaning such things as telehealth and telemedicine. Thirdly, for engagement, we couldn't, our van was sitting empty and still. We couldn't take people out in vans for engagement, nor our multi-purpose activity loom was closed down. So we had to think more creatively about engagement and how we use digital, the digital world to create engagement. Lastly, sales and marketing. We couldn't do tours, live tours anymore. And so a whole, we had to think completely differently about sales and marketing. All of these areas, I would say, as tough as they were, we made huge strides forward in learning that we could do things and we could be flexible and we could adapt in ways we never realized as an industry we could. So I think I've heard you talk in this conversation here area about um, COVID, about sort of a moat around our building and how mm -hmm. that's collapsed. Can you comment a little bit more on that? Yeah, basically until March 2020, private pay senior living basically said proudly, we have a moat around our building. No healthcare happens inside our buildings. All of a sudden, starting in late March, we were up on Capitol Hill saying, hey, we are not only part of the healthcare system, we're the front lines of defense against this pandemic. And the only way your ICUs and your ERs are not going to get overwhelmed is if you provide us the ability to provide better care, testing, uh, PPE, later on vaccinations for the residents in our building. So we, we basically, that, that, that moat that said we don't do health care, we dropped all pretense of that as of April 2020. And that was huge because there's no going back on that for the industry. So has that affected, you think, the perception of sort of real estate investors in, our, in senior housing? 
I, I don't think it's an accident coming out of this that there's a huge interest in active adult and in areas of senior housing that have the least staff, hence the staffing, right, related the staffing adult. crisis, and the least health care, least regulation, least danger of, 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 of reimbursement uh, 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 vagaries and so forth. So, yes. And I think a couple other things about, I would say, about COVID. One, it brought mental and behavioral health issues sort of emerged from the shadows and they won't return. Just yesterday, a major a company, a new company was launched with uh, Chris Enskoff as the CEO with major uh, private equity backing uh, led by both uh, Arch Ventures and, and General Catalyst to specifically address issues of mental health and behavioral health among seniors. Um, and uh, I think infection control and prevention, they're new table stakes. They won't, they're not the thing that's going to enable you to attract people into your communities, but it's, it, it, it's not sufficient, but it's necessary. If you're not doing the latest in terms of infection control, control and prevention, um, you're not, people won't move into your communities. And the last thing I'd say about COVID is that it, in essence, to me, it punctuated the end of what I would call the first generation of private pay seniors housing and the second generation more broadly of housing and care for the elderly in the United States. And that was like the board and care. Facility yeah, the first generation was board and care and the CCRC, the, the launching of CCRC. faith based CCRCs. Second generation then was the explosion of private pay senior living, independent living, memory care, assisted living. And now the, the third generation, I think, is really going to be very much driven initially by how do we reach people in their 70s and 80s? Because the more highly educated residents who can afford private pay senior living, those folks aren't going to need care-driven senior living for the most part until their late 80s or 90s. Right. So they're still... 10, 12 years away from being our customers. But how are we going to serve them now? A lot of folks are very interested in that. So that gets into, actually, I think um, sometimes your third point, but let's go there and then because we brought it up. Okay. So the new customer. Yeah. And who the new customer is and, and longevity and how that fits into. Yeah. Uh, the way I like to talk about it, Beth, is that, it, that uh, a new customer is arriving now with a very different take on longevity. And what I mean by that, the best example I like to use is my father-in-law, Sam. And he was a World War II Army veteran. Uh, and, you know, at 89, he said to me when we were visiting the uh, Churchill uh, Museum and the war rooms in London, he said, Bob, isn't, can you believe it? I'm still alive. And he retired at 62 after a heart attack. And here he was at 89. He ended up passing away at 93. He had what I call, and the greatest generation had what I call accidental longevity. They never expected to live this long. And they were just grateful to have survived. The generation, their children coming along behind them, they, that who are going to be our new customer, they, they, they're not going to have accidental longevity. They know they're likely to live a long time. They want purposeful longevity. Purposeful longevity means it's not enough to live longer. You want to live better. You want a better quality of life. And that put simply means 
You want not just years added to your life. In fact, that, if it's poor quality of life, is a drag. What you want is more life in those years. I think I've heard you say thrive, not yes. just survive. Yeah, you're determined to thrive. It's not, you're, it's not acceptable to just survive. And that's going to change the expectations uh, for our product. So, you know, I, I think, uh, put simply, I would say that our society still today is built for people to retire and die in their 60s and 70s. And it hasn't adjusted to the reality that many people are living not just to their 80s, but to their 90s and 100 and beyond. And that has enormous implications. But key for the boomers, this new customer is, they want what Lynn Katzman has, has, has called wellspan. They want their health span to as nearly as possible match their lifespan. And for many boomers, that means they want a lifestyle and a setting that is as much as possible, not only going to enable them to have wellspan, but as, as much as possible going to enable them to avoid care-driven senior living for as long as possible, if not completely. And I think, uh, can you comment a little bit on what Stanford has done with their map of life? Yeah, this is, this is revolutionary, though its, it's meaning is greatest. And this is what I love about the field of aging and longevity. This has the greatest implications for our children and their children. But what the Stanford new map of life is, it's a map for the 100-year life. And it's recognizing what I talked about before. Most people aren't uh, retiring and dying in their 60s and 70s. That as they, when released uh, last November, they pointed out that in the United States, demographers predict that as many of, as half of today's five-year-olds can expect to live to the age of 100. Oh my gosh. And if you look at our customers who tend to more likely than not to have more education, the, the likelihood of living to 100 even goes up uh, beyond 50%. So then that looks at the implications. People won't have a career. They'll have careers. They won't have one time of preparation for what they're going to do. They may have multiple times. So Harvard, Stanford, uh, Notre Dame, University of Minnesota now all have what you could title encore career programs to help you find and train for and prepare for an encore career. You could say that when I launched Nexus Insights, that was an encore career for me. My wife trembles to think what might does. be next after that. But um, it's a recognition that, that we have enormous economic power. We have enormous brain power. We have enormous wisdom and experience. And we need to harness this and use this in society. So can that help? I know one of your other key drivers is the staffing crisis. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the example you just provided of, of a second career yep. or after you retire doing something, is that a possible solution for some of the staffing crises that, you know, you know all of our, all, everybody is facing a staffing crisis, but especially in the skilled nursing. Industry. We're going to have to think younger, think older and think differently. Yeah. Okay. So what does that mean? Think younger. You're, we're, I'm seeing now more and more internship programs, starting with kids when they're 16, and 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 also courses to introduce them because it's not just thinking about a career in aging or a career in uh, senior care. It's thinking differently about aging and those that are aged. And that's critical. We'll never ultimately solve that workforce challenge without addressing that issue. But also it's thinking older. 
in Japan that doesn't have the positive immigration that we have um, and that has an even more anemic birth rate than ours. There, it's much more now the standard social expectation that those 60 to 80 years of age will be involved in the care of those 80 to 110. The old taking care of the older and the older taking care of the oldest. And, And so they've also focused much of their technology to offset the physical limitations of the 72-year-old. For exoskeletons and, and, and robots and so on and so forth. So I think, yes, I believe there's going to be an increasing role for people in their 60s and 70s to be involved in the care and housing and services for those older than them. And I also think that's going to be an increasing role for volunteers in senior living settings, also as a way of potentially, in a sense, deferring or, 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 or reducing overall costs, overall costs of the community, overall costs of the resident. You will, in a sense, pay it forward. And, and you see that in the, in the uh, village movement concept, but you're also starting to see that like uh, two life communities in Boston, their opus model, yep. where there's a requirement. And which in the focus, people like it, people like that. They, they, as you know, Beth, because we've talked about this, the prospective residents were given four options and they chose the option for the highest number of required hours of volunteerism because they said they wanted their fellow residents similarly invested in the community because they recognize that creates community too. So going younger, going older, the role of immigration is going to be key. We still have far too many barriers and too many of our exceptions are only quote for highly skilled workers. And we need to create a pathway for low skilled, unskilled workers, particularly who come from cultures who who value older adults and elders and value service to come into our country. So that's interesting. So I've been talking to some operators about this lately that now we spend a lot of time or some operators spend time teaching their staff mm-hmm. about the residents and the music that they liked when they were growing up right. in the 40s and the 50s. But I'm um, increasingly thinking that we need to teach our residents about the staff and have to have the two-way communication, two-way understanding both ways. And especially if you're going to be calling upon a staff that uh, may be different than who the residents are in terms of different just back- backgrounds and experiences in their life. The growing income inequality in our country has honestly led to less and less uh, empathy, let alone understanding of the frontline or what we now have termed because of COVID to call the essential worker. Mm -hmm. And we've got to, one of the ways we're going to charge the change or, or, or address the workforce challenge is to realize our employees are employees, not just from the time they clock in to clock out. But we have to show understanding, empathy, and we can't solve all the issues they leave at home when they come to work. But we've got to show that we're partnering with them and addressing some of those very challenges. When we do that, we'll be the employer of choice. I totally when we agree. do that, we'll have employees who are committed to us and committed to uh, our residents. Okay. So we talked about three drivers, the COVID-19 pandemic, mm-hmm. the new customer and longevity and how that um, mm-hmm. merges with each other and now the staffing crisis so a fourth one is reframing health and healthcare. so talk about that a little bit yeah 
reframing health and healthcare is move, realizing that we're moving. And the way I would put this deliberately, Beth, is we're moving slowly but surely. Because so many people anticipated this would happen overnight. It's not. But is it going to happen or is this just a fact? It's going to happen. Why? Because of the concerns about uncontrollable costs for, for governments of, of health care. And the only way on top of this is to move ultimately from a sick care model to a well care model. A sick care model is curative in focus. It's reactive, waits till you get sick or have an accident, and it's passive. There's very little role for the consumer, whereas a well care model is preventative. It's predictive. It's trying to anticipate when you may have a health issue, and it's participatory. There's a key role for the for the customer. And does so that relate to fee-for-service and value-based? It, it does in that the move to a well-care model is, is people realize, because we're, we've always had a sick care model. And the only way we're really effectively shifting in that is to no longer pay based on volume of services, but based ra- rather on the value in terms of the outcomes and the total cost of those services. And so to incentivize, in other words, healthcare providers to be able to reduce unnecessary hospitalizations, to stop, particularly with our residents, what I would call the the destructive cycle, which is you go to the hospital for a flare-up of a chronic condition, you come back out, and then everyone waits till it flares up again, and then you go back again. Each time your health has suffered and your quality of life has suffered. It's very expensive. It provides a crappy quality of life uh, for for the resident. And and it's just they're on a roller coaster that usually over two to three years ends up taking their life. The systems aren't necessarily talking with each other. Not at all. And that gets to another one of our drivers that we'll we'll get to. But yes, we have all these disconnected. Right now, we have silos. Each silo has been incentivized to hold on to its customer for as long as possible and maximize everything they can charge during that period of time because it's all based on value. And what that means is a lot of unnecessary care. And so we have the wrong care at the wrong time in the wrong place rather than the right care in the right place at the right time. And and that's it's this is a, I would say, a 10 to 20 year shift which were, which we also was kind of interrupted because of COVID when all focus had to be on the pandemic. So we're, we're in the, still in the early days of this shift, but it is going to happen. And as an industry, we need to realize our resonance are some of the keys. Why? Because in memory care, in assisted living in particular, in skilled nursing, and more and more in independent living, they're the highest risk, highest cost individuals. So they're the ones where you're going to have the greatest gains in terms of reducing reducing healthcare costs by starting to move to a preventative predictive system. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So how, how specifically a lot of our listeners would be those who are involved in the senior housing industry. Mm-hmm. So how does senior housing fit into this? And, and do, do there have to be shifts in how we are serving our residents and how we... They're due. They, they're absolutely due. But let me put it this way. I think, first of all, it's important. The operator, uh, the owner, the investor has got to understand how this is going to change the fundamental nature 
of what happens in our buildings and with our residents. That said, does that mean the senior living operator has to become a healthcare provider? No. There are a lot of choices about how you choose to address these needs of your residents or have them addressed. And it doesn't mean you've got to do it. What would be an example of that? Well, an example of that would be, for instance, partnering with uh, a uh, healthcare provider who is focused on value-based care, who is focused on reducing unnecessary hospitalizations, and who either themselves or whoever is paying them is at dollar is taking what what is known as the healthcare dollar risk for that person. But I think what's key to that, in other words, so we can partner. We don't have to do it ourselves. That said, whatever you decide to do, you can't make good business decisions, good partnership decisions, good, good strategy decisions without data and analytics. And that's my fifth driver. Because without them, you can't customize. The data now, and this is really exciting, is I'm, I'm literally in the midst of writing this right now this week in, in my next blog post. Uh, because data analytics enables us to customize and personalize. And that's what the customer wants in the future. And when it comes to healthcare, we need to have customized, if you want, journeys or paths. And it's data that allows that. Now, does that mean that the senior living operator has got to be actually uh, uh, mapping out that journey? No. But you can't partner with someone as a real partnership, unless you know the data about the residents in your building. Now, wasn't available even a year ago, but now MIPMAP Vision, uh, thanks to work between them and NORC at the University of Chicago, we now have data that, talk, that shows us, for instance, based on Medicare claims data and using the nine digit zip code locator of senior living communities, we know the average healthcare spend, the average spend on hospitals, the average spend on home health, um, the average spend on hospice. We also know, for instance, who are the top 10 providers coming into your building providing healthcare services? They may not be coming in, but who are, who are the 10 docs that, that build the most services to the people that live in your buildings? Well, what are you going to do with that? What you're going to do with that is understand just as, as a, for instance, we also will know, we now know and can look at the prevalence of the 10 most expensive chronic diseases. And so we see that, for instance, Miami compared to Cincinnati, Miami has more than four times the rate of Alzheimer's disease than does Cincinnati. One immediate, this is going to change all market feasibility studies for the future. Just as years ago, we shifted from only looking at, at older adults to looking at their adult children. And this healthcare data is going to have to be a fundamental part of any feasibility study in the future. Well, done for so I used to do feasibility studies quite a lot. And we used a you're, flat number of yep. 12% when you try to figure out the incidence of, of memory care. Yeah. And now what you're saying is that I know that the higher incidence is in Miami. So I'm going to use a different factor in figuring out my demand. And, and, and you're also that. going to be able, you know, if you own some buildings in there or operate, you're going to be able to look at those buildings and see what is the actual incidence in those buildings. And you might cause and you to specialize. It, and you compare it to that MSA yeah. or to that county. Yeah. So this, what I'm saying is for strategic planning, for partnering, for uh, market, 
anyone that is not incorporating this data into market feasibility studies is not basically in the new era of senior living. Well, and they might miss the mark too, and they might lose a lot of money. (laughs) Very much so. Because you're not, otherwise you're going to be making your example 12% generalized assumptions that may be flat out wrong. The market may be one quarter what you think, or it might be four times what you think. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah. So this whole the whole point is that you have to, this data is available to you as an owner or as an operator. You have to have it, you have to understand it, but it doesn't mean you have to be the one that go, that goes out and provides all these healthcare services. I would actually argue too, that because data ultimately is more than just medical spend and chronic disease data. And that's another thing. And and this is where industry has a real opportunity, but we've been historically weak. We are real experts on data on uh, functional needs, activities of daily living, instrumental activities of daily living, prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs, and especially ability to pay. But no one's identity is defined by that. And so now we're starting to see data sets that are, for instance, one company calls it an electronic life record. And that's capturing what's what matters to the individual. What to them gives them a sense of purpose, belonging, connection. And that enables you, for instance, think totally differently about things like engagement programs. Again, rather than having one size fits all, it's only with using this kind of data that you can personalize and customize programs without having to have 100 staff members do engagement programs for 100 100 So as you're getting more specialized in medicine or in Mm -hmm. the engagement, is that going to be cost effective or is that going to raise the overall cost since a bigger overarching theme is, is? Well, great question. That leads to our last driver, from which I call from siloed to seamless. Right now in our highly specialized uh, silo driven healthcare system, we basically have experts in each silo. And what happens is with these silos, three things happen. First of all, um, for the individual, their journey is a series of silos with nobody there to help them in between. And the gaps in the silos and the more specializations means rather than there being four silos, now there's eight. Yes. And in the gaps, A, the individual gets lost. Absolutely. B, their data gets lost. C, providers who really care about the resident or patient get frustrated because They're just seeing this person bounce back and not get better. And if they actually have a relationship with the patient and care about them, it's unbelievably frustrating. Mm -hmm. And so from silo to seamless is this move that is just starting to happen. But where we think about, first of all, the customer experience. And again, this is part of consumerism, which is far more, you know, again, I spent a lot of time looking at retail. And because retail is so much further along, it, hospitality, just think of all the different brands for the different niches. Uh, that's in our future, but we're not there yet because we don't have the data and we haven't known how to use it. So, but, but basically, um, this seamless experience means you're going to have uh, a seamless experience of, for the, the, the customer. Their data will flow seamlessly. And most importantly, even if there are different providers, 
they're going to be looking at the same set of data. And it's not just health outcomes. It's the, the most important question to every older adult, particularly in our industry, where many folks, other than entrance fee CCRCs, they're moving in for what is usually the last three to five years of their lives. So the most important question is, what matters to you? What 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 experiences do you want to have in the next three to five years? What for you would would signify a sense of joy or accomplishment or 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 just something that would be really rewarding to you in these remaining years of our lives? And those are actually the questions we need to be capturing the answers to. And it's only then with machine learning and artificial intelligence, as I said, to ask those questions now without algorithms, machine learning, and AI, we'd have to have these huge engagement staffs. And it's it, it, it would never happen. It's too expensive, except for the super wealthy. So this moving from siloed to seamless, in, first of all, it's the experience of the customer, the consumer. Secondly, it's their data. Thirdly, it's all the people that engage with them, which includes the family caregivers who get incredibly burned out and frustrated. That's for sure. All right, so the six drivers, just to review them again, would be the COVID-19 pandemic, the staffing crisis, the new customer and, and sort of the merger of that with the longevity that we're seeing in aging, a reframing of health and healthcare, the increasing importance of data analytics, and then this seamless moving from siloed to seamless. So that's so I know I just want to let our listeners know that if they're interested in hearing more on this, we have a series of blogs written by Bob on the Nick Notes blog that I think the first four are up right now and you can go and, and listen to them further. So Bob, now that you've been thinking about this for a long yeah. time, um, have these six drivers at all sort of affected your own personal view as and we're all getting older. Yeah. So has this affected your view on how aging and, and Absolutely, lifestyle? Yeah. In two ways. First of all, my wife and I have both just turned 73. And so we're thinking for us, Every time I go look at a community or hear about a new idea or a new trend, I put it through the filter of what would appeal to us. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm not doing that. And and we're planners. So good plug out there. You know, thinking about, well, if something happened to one of us, what would we do? If we lost mobility, got a diagnosis of Alzheimer's uh, or something like that. But also thinking about right now with our lifestyle, what would we want? But the second thing I would say the way it's impacted me is I hadn't realized the extent that ageism influences all aspects of our society. And as I alluded to earlier, what I've realized is my efforts in that area, many of them through through what I'm doing at Nexus Insights, are ultimately for my grandchildren because they have the most at stake. It's too late to be blunt to change societal attitudes about retirement and old people for me and for my wife. But knowing that my grandchildren have a very high likelihood of living to 100 or beyond, I don't want them to spend a third of their life consigned to cultural, economic, and social uh, irrelevancy because they're over the hill. They've lost utility. So changing that, and that's my passion and motivation for teaching in universities. It's I really want to reach uh, uh, Gen Z and 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 work with millennials uh, ar- around this issue. So those are two key ways in which it's really uh, very much impacted me. It's 
great. All right. So we only have a few minutes left here. And I always love your stories. <laughs> I've known you a long time. And every time I'm with you, you tell me something else that I just get uh, love hearing about. So see if you can find one that you haven't told me yet about, about your life that you'd like to share with our audience about a life lesson or fantastic experience you've had. Well, I guess uh, I would say, and I'll apply this in a second. Uh, I would say it's read wisely, read deeply. And I say that in a time when there's not a lot of reading going on. The internet, short takes on everything, so forth. But my reason for saying this is this. I feel, again, as I think I have shared with you, my father had an enormous influence on me. But one of the things he taught me uh, by... By pushing back every time I would, I've never been at a loss for words or opinions. I know that'll be a shock to all the listeners. And uh, so every time I'm starting, literally when I was 10 or 11 years old, I would express an opinion. My father would always take the other side. And what he taught me by this was that, in essence, if you don't understand other points of view to your own, and you don't understand the reasoning behind them and why people hold them, then to be blunt, you're not wise, you're not educated, and frankly, you're not informed on the issue. Right. And that was made an indelible impact upon me. And you know, I, you know, and then when I kind of uh, uh, think about right now, I guess I'm I'm going to close with uh, something I I I just heard in a podcast that I listened to, and and the statement was made, and it was from someone that I, I view as a leader. But he made the comment, he said, as a leader, if you're not managing change, you are just presiding, not leading. And I thought, wow, in this disruptive moment that we're in as a society, in terms of democracy, so many things, also in terms of senior living, with all the changes that, that we've just been talking about, And, you know, I thought that was incredibly insightful as a leader. If you're not managing change, change is a reality, because if you're not managing change, all you're doing is presiding over a fiefdom or over something you think we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Nobody can move us off our pedestal. And we all know many examples in business and in life where that's proven to be, you know, once you have that perspective, you're usually at risk of being disrupted right out of business. And so. I thought this was um, a great quote to close with. We're in a time of change. Absolutely. And so leaders have got to manage change. And going back to the Kissinger quote, that means managing the crisis. It was COVID. Now it's workforce. But while building the future. And what does that look like? So that's what we've been talking about. That's great. So at the beginning, I mentioned that I'd like that. I'm hoping that you walk away with an aha moment here from something that Bob said. And certainly one that I'm going to walk away with is I'm going to go home and have an argument with my husband tonight. And we'll take two sides <laughs> so you can see both side points of view. So that's really helpful. So thanks so much. And as I said, you can hear more about the survivors. You go to the nick.org, www.nick.org website. And look at Nick Notes, the blog series. Thank you, Bob, as always. Thanks, Beth. Great to be with you.